Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that you have given us through Christ Jesus. We pray that this word takes deep root in our heart, renewing us, transforming us, so that we ever love Christ day by day following him, keeping his word in all that we do. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. How would you caption that picture? What would you say? Lazy? Boring? Daydreaming? Kind of like, whatever. Right? You've seen this look before. Whatever. Now, what if that look was in your marriage? That'd be pretty disconcerting, wouldn't it? I mean, you and I have used the metaphor of marriage fairly heavily throughout this particular series. We've spoken of a love that's grown cold, a heart that has flirted with others, one that has gone into full adultery. But what if marriage was like this, lukewarm at best? For instance, what if you came home, you said, honey, it's just you and me this weekend. We're going to go away. We are going to rekindle our love into a flaming fire of love so that the world will know. And you get the response of, yeah, whatever. Wouldn't you say that that marriage needs a wake-up call? A deep wake-up call. Welcome to the church of Laodicea. It is a lukewarm church that is in grave danger. You see, unlike other churches in the series that we've talked about, there is no persecution happening with the church of Laodicea. There are no false teachers. There's no Nicolaitans. There's no uh, teacher like Balaam or Jezebel. Rather, the church has simply accommodated itself to the culture, to the city. It is sitting on its laurels, so to speak. There's no proclaiming Christ. There's no making disciples. It is a lukewarm church. Now, here's something very interesting. With all the other churches and how awful it was, and we've talked about how awful some of these churches was, Jesus at least found something good to say about each and every church. But here, with a lukewarm church... He has nothing good to say. And this should really bring us up, bring us to attention, so to speak. Because I think one of the lessons we want to start off with is this. There is no middle ground with Jesus. Being lukewarm in our relationship with Jesus is not an option. And so the call this morning is to repent and be zealous in our love for Christ Jesus. So that's the foundation that we're going to be working through here this morning. Thus, let us learn now from our Savior the words he has for the church at Laodicea. We start again with the image that Jesus brings to the church and to the angel of the church of Laodicea write the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus says he is the amen, not a amen, not one of, but the amen. 
And when we say amen, it means true or trustworthy. Thus, he is the amen. And the words that follow also help us to understand that he is the faithful and true witness. Now, he adds another phrase to this, though, that's very important. He says, the beginning of God's creation. So when we see that, when we hear that, when we read that, we should not think that he is a created being. That's not it at all. That he is the source of all creation. If you go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 through 18, most of it is on the screen, but I'm going to read all of it. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And I've highlighted those last words, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is giving an image, an introduction to the church in Laodicea, this this lukewarm church. He says, I am the amen, the trustworthy one, the faithful one. And in everything, I should be preeminent. And so the lesson this morning is this. Jesus made all things, possesses all things, controls all things, and all things were made for him, and we are to serve our Lord in all things. Not just part, not just a Sunday morning, but in all things. Our relationship with Jesus is never meant to be warm or tepid or whatever. So now we're going to go to what Jesus sees. And as I said, he doesn't see anything good in this lukewarm church. He sees the bad. He says, I know your works. You are neither hot and you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So as I have done with the other churches, I need to give you a little bit of background about the church of Laodicea. So there's the map. You can see, number one, starting with Ephesus, we've basically gone around in uh, a bit of a circle. And there is Laodicea. Laodicea was actually named in 250 B.C. by a Syrian ruler, and he named it for his wife. Laodicea is about 100 miles east of Ephesus, and it was a gateway to Ephesus and Ephesus was a gateway to Syria, hence the Syrian king naming it in honor of his wife. In 133 BC, however, the Romans took over and made it a judicial and administrative city, a center. They built road systems, north, south, east, west, and anytime you got a city that's at crossroads, it starts to prosper because of all the commerce that goes through. 
So Laodicea was a very prosperous city. It was known for its black wool, for the garment industry, but especially for this soft black wool that was used for clothing. It was also a city that had a very well-developed hospital, medical center. They had both ear and eye salve, and a special eye salve that made this medical center, this hospital, so to speak, world-renowned. It was a very wealthy city. It was so wealthy that there was an earthquake in 60 A.D., and the city fathers refused financial aid from the Roman government because they had enough money to rebuild the city. And not only did they rebuild the city, they helped other cities around them. And finally, there's something else that's important in this. The water. Laodicea was dependent on water being piped in. Now, you've heard the church, the letter to the Colossians, the church at Colossae. They were about 11 miles south. They had very cold, refreshing water. But the water that got piped into Laodicea was from the north, from Hierapolis. Now, Hierapolis had very hot springs, and they were wonderful medicinal springs, And so the water was piped through aqueducts all the way to Laodicea. But the water had a lot of calcium carbonate in it. And by the time it got to Laodicea, the water was tepid. It was lukewarm, and it didn't taste good. One person wrote this, John McRae, in his book, Archaeology in the New Testament, Water piped into Laodicea by aqueduct was so concentrated with minerals that Roman engineers designed vents capped by removable stones so that the aqueduct pipes could be periodically cleared of deposits. I'm going to put it into another way. The water was so bad by the time it got to Laodicea that it could make you nauseous and vomit. That's the water coming in. So now, when Jesus said, were that you were cold, cold springs from the church at Colossae, or hot, right, from Laodicea, would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You now understand that reference to the spiritual lukewarm tepidity that Jesus talks about this church. The church is so awful, he wants to vomit them out of his mouth. See, a lot of people think they can just drift along being lukewarm in their relationship to Jesus. But again and again, Jesus says, no, there's no middle ground with you. One commentator put it this way. Lukewarm Christians are those who claim to know God but live as though he doesn't exist. They may go to church and practice a form of religion, but their inner state is one of self-righteous complacency. They claim to be Christians, but their hearts are unchanged, and their hypocrisy is sickening to God. Now, you you want to know what happens when we hear words like that. Our pride wants to come up. We want to say, but, 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 I'm sure the church in Laodicea said something like, but look, we have money and we have given to other people who are poor and have needed that. 
pride wants to rise up. We want to defend ourselves. But Jesus lays bare. He lays them to waste with these words. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, poor, uh, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. To say that somebody is wretched talks about the depraved moral state. Other words for wretched are worthless, base, and despicable. It speaks to a moral decay. Now, if somebody were to declare that you are wretched, that would be a harsh word, wouldn't it? How much harsher it is then that Jesus, the Amen, the faithful and true, the one by whom all things were made, calls them wretched. You know, we're going to sing Amazing Grace. John Newton, writing Amazing Grace. How does it begin? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me. You know, I know some people who have actually changed that word out, wretch, and put a soul in there because they don't like to think of themselves as wretched. But John Newton knew how much of a wretch he was. But how does the song begin? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Because he knew of his moral decay, he also knew the sweetness of God's grace. You see, the people who don't know the sweetness of God's grace do not know how wretched they are. It's only when you know that that you start to understand how amazing God's grace is. So Jesus says that they are pitiable, that they, they who think they are so doing so well, they're spiritually bankrupt. They have no money. They are spiritually bankrupt. They are spiritually blind, and they are naked before God. They are in their shame. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. They realized they were naked before God, and what did they do? They wanted to hide themselves because they were ashamed. Jesus is talking to this church and he's saying, you know what? You're like that emperor who thought he had on really fine clothes until finally someone said, you're naked. And the emperor was ashamed. This is what Jesus, the amen, says to this church. Harsh words. But he says, listen to me now. I'm going to tell you what you need to do. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and a white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So I have a question. If these people are so wretched, pitiable, poor, bankrupt, how could they buy anything? How could you and I buy anything? And the answer actually is found in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 55. It says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. 
Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Brothers and sisters, this is a gospel message. This is a gospel message, one of such great grace. It is sweet words to those who know they are spiritually poor, pitiable, naked before God. Jesus with the Laodiceans says this, buy gold refined by fire. Well, what is that? Well, Jesus is the refiner's fire, burning away all impurities that you might have. It is only through him that we are made pure. And white robes, you and I have talked about the white robes of righteousness, that they are washed by, our, our sin is washed by the blood of the lamb. Here for the church in Laodicea, because they had black, so much black wool, he's talking about, no, no, no. It's the whiteness, it's the purity, it's the holiness that you can only find in me. And I will cover your shame. It is the righteousness of Christ that covers our shame. And then he says, the eye salve, right? The city was known for this worldwide. But yet this church was still spiritually blind. So God's grace has the ability to turn our spiritual blindness, our darkness into light or sight. Paul talked about this when he was on the road to Damascus and Jesus struck him down. Paul in Acts is relating to this. He said, Jesus commissioned me to go to the Gentiles. And this is what he commissioned Paul. He said, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in him. That's the, is, that's the gospel message right there. To go from darkness to light. To go from Satan to God. From sin to forgiveness of sin. And what does it also say in the song Amazing Grace? I was blind, but now I see. Christ, the light of the world, shines into your darkness. He provides a path, a way, where there is no other way. And his light will never be overcome by darkness. So Jesus is saying to this church, come, come, come to me now. Hear that your soul may live. And he says this to each and every one of you because he loves you. He says, to those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Just as we talked about in the church of Sardis, we must remember this, that all discipline, all rebuke coming from the Lord is because he loves you. Proverbs 
Chapter 3, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So he says, because I love you, I'm reproving and discipline you. Therefore, this is important, therefore. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. What is it to be zealous? Zealous is a passion, a fire, isn't it? Now, I understand it's football season. Yeah, right? I'm not a big football fan, but I understand there's a lot of football games going on right now. Do you see zealousness in the football fans? I found this one picture. I thought that was good. Okay, right? You see football fans who are zealous for their team. That's what they talk about. That's what they cheer. They plan their whole life around their football team. And yet, when it comes to faith in Christ Jesus, crickets. There's no zealousness there, is there? I mean, really, a zealousness in Christ. But Jesus, if you take a look at the language, the command is be zealous. It is an imperative. It's not a suggestion. It is a command, be zealous. And we actually find that throughout Scripture. If you've got sermon notes, I listed there there in the sermon notes, Romans chapter 12, verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Another term for zeal is fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Titus chapter 2, a people zealous for good deeds. 1 Peter, love one another fervently. 2 Peter, be all the more zealous to confirm your call and election. You and I are to be zealous. Now, where does that zealousness come from? It certainly doesn't come from just wanting to. I'm going to tell you exactly where zealousness comes from. It comes from loving Jesus. The greater your love for Jesus, the greater your desire to know him, to keep his word, to tell others, to build up the body of Christ, which is the church, and to make disciples. If you are zealous in your love for Christ Jesus, it spills over into the things that I've just mentioned. If you have no zealousness for Christ, these things just don't happen. It's plain and simple. You see, I would rather be known as a zealous person for Christ. Paul said a fool for Christ. Let me be a fool for Christ. Why not? Let me be a fool for Christ. I would rather be a fool for Christ than look wise in the eyes of the world. So now, this zealousness that we are to have is an ongoing zealousness. It's not just a Sunday sort of thing. It's a throughout the week. But then he gives another command, and it is repent. This command, repent, is a one-time command. Once, repent, turn away from all of your lukewarmness and come to him. 
So now let's go to the promises here. The promise, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant, to, grant him to sit with me on the throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. We've come to one of the most famous verses of scripture, the one that is often quoted. Here I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. There's actually a famous picture that goes along with this. William Holman Hunt in 1853 wrote The Light of the World. It's actually on the uh, left side of the screen for you. I've also put another one in there, a more modern version of that. How, How many people have seen this picture? Yeah, okay. It's actually a very famous picture. And there's something about this picture that you might not know that you might not notice that the door itself does not have an outside handle. So Jesus is knocking the door, but there is no particular handle for it. The artist explained it this way. Jesus is waiting for us to open the door of our hearts and welcome him in. Now, this is a much, much beloved painting. A lot of people have this hanging up. Unfortunately, it's not based in Scripture. If you take a look at what Jesus has just said, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth, right? How harsh that is. And all of a sudden, Jesus turns in this meek little guy going, hello, hello, any sinners in there? It just doesn't fit with Scripture. Rather, it is this. When he says, behold, that's a listen up with an exclamation point. It's more like, behold! And when he says, here I stand at the door, it's not like I'm just standing here kind of waiting. It's more like I have stood here before and I am standing here now. And when it's knocking, it's not just a little rap. It's more like... He is pounding on the door to get your attention. You see, who's standing at the door? It's not this meek little man, gentle. It is the master of the house who has come home to the church. And he is pounding on the door to get your attention. And there's good news in all of this. There is good news in all of this. The good news is this, that Jesus Christ comes to all, to those who are asleep in their faith, those who have grown cold in their love or lukewarm, those who have lost their way. He comes and seeks you. He persistently calls to you. Isn't that good news? The shepherd comes to you, those who are lost, those who have grown cold, those who have lost their way, those who have just become lukewarm. He says, I love you, and here I stand knocking at the door. And the promise is, if you answer that call, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, you answer that call, he says, you will be with me in heaven, sitting next to me where I am on my throne.
This is the message to the church in Laodicea. So what about you? See, there's, there's a prayer you could pray here this morning. You don't have to. There's no compulsion that you have to. But I'm going to pray this. And I'd like you to pray along with me, if you would. Lord Jesus, that would be you then. Lord Jesus, I know that apart from you, I am a wretched sinner. I am sorry for all the wrong, all of the hurt, all of the sorrow I have caused you and others. I repent of my sin. You are my Lord and Savior. Give me your spirit. Give me zeal for you. Let me be on fire for you this and every day, that in everything you may be preeminent in my life. I trust in you, your word, and your promises. Come, Lord Jesus, come. This is the prayer that he will always answer. He is the Amen, and to him we say, Amen. We hope that you've been blessed by this message. If you have any questions or you would like to grow deeper in your faith, please visit our website at joyccc.com. Again, that's joyccc.com. Dot com.